to give you a bit of a historical context for what we're going to talk about Hinduism in the 20th century. And um, I think it can be argued that around the turn of the century and then into the early 20th century, that Hinduism, in a sense, reinvented itself in a way which is, uh, well, it's interesting. And the question would arise, I mean, Hinduism thought that it was simply reaffirming itself, its eternal ancient tradition. And so the question arises, in reaffirming itself in the face of new challenges, which we'll talk about, uh, was the Vedic tradition reaffirming itself or reinventing itself and actually coming up with something different? Even though people believed it was a reaffirmation of what had always been, but to what extent was it really an authentic reaffirmation? To what extent was it really something new influenced by India's contact with other parts of the world? So, I hope I've intrigued you. Anyway, historical context. Um, Briefly to review, something very significant happened in England around 200 years ago, or say around 200 and well, 200 years ago, 220 years ago, and that is there was a there was a religious revival. There was sort of a religious revival. These things were also going on in America called Great Awakenings. If you study American history around 1800, around the same time in America and England, sort of a resurgence of popular, sometimes dogmatic religion. If you read, by the way, there's, a, there's an author, George Eliot, who's a lady, who used that name. But George Eliot, in her book, uh, Middlemarch, gives a, uh, there's a very interesting picture of the religious diversity in England, say, in the first part of the 19th century. That was very good. Uh, Rinda and Vishnabar performed last night, for those of you who were there. It's a great performance. So, um, what, what was the significance for India? Up until that religious revival, up until approximately 1800, the East India Company, which ruled India, India is not under the English government. It's actually being ruled by a private corporation. And um, was it Halliburton? No, it was the East India Company. So, uh, of course, the East India Company, the East India Company was overseen by Parliament, but it was a very cozy, sweetheart deal, so to speak. And so India was actually under the rule of the East India Company, and they would not allow missionaries on their boats. If they even caught a preacher on one of their boats, they'd send them back to the next boat. If they caught a preacher anywhere in India, they'd ship them back because they did not want... I mean, imagine, let's say, like Walmart. For example, if you, if, if you go to Walmart, you go into their, let's say, into, uh, what do they call it, Benson? Benson, Arkansas, if you go to the corporate headquarters of Walmart and say, is it okay if we start putting up all kinds of religious symbols, like we preach in your stores? Do you mind if we, and they're going to say, like, no way. I mean, the last thing in the world Walmart wants is some of evangelical preachers going up and down the aisles of their stores trying to convert people, because that is really bad business. And so the East India Company, that was their attitude. This is very bad business, and that's why we're in India. We're here to do business. But again, the East India Company was ultimately under the authority of the British Parliament. And with the religious revival, more and more evangelical-type people got elected to Parliament or 
uh, people in Parliament in order to get votes, do what politicians always do, and began to vote in ways that would please their constituents. The result was that around 200 years ago, approximately, uh, the East India Company began to allow missionaries into India. And uh, so all these evangelical preachers started going over on the boats. Now, there was an Indian reaction to this, because up until then, the British, whatever you thought about them, they weren't really messing with Hinduism. They were just doing business and sort of grasping for political control wherever they could find it. But still, it was basically, you know, that's what they were doing. But when they, then they wanted to convert Hindus to Christianity, and they began to make propaganda. And uh, these preachers, in order to make their case, in order to convince Hindus that you should become a Christian, of course, they felt it was necessary to trash Hinduism. They had to convince Hindus that the last thing in the world you want to do is be a Hindu because it's really a stupid religion and you really need to be a Christian. Now, as we talked about earlier in the course, uh, this is also the time, around 1800, when Indology, the Western academic study of religion in general, and Hinduism in particular, is really picking up steam. Around 1790, Sir William Jones, who started the uh, Asiatic Society of Bengal, and who studied, he's one that declared to Bengal, to the world, that Sanskrit was an Indo-European language, more sophisticated than Greek or Latin. And so, on the one hand, so Europe is academically, intellectually, in a scholarly way, discovering India. So the missionaries, the missionaries going over on the boats are using this scholarship, and some, in some cases, generating this scholarship in order to make their case. And so they're translating Vedic scriptures in order to show how dumb they are. Like, for example, there's uh, one of the great Indologists in the 19th century, uh, German Hermann Oldenberg, uh, in, his, in an article on the Rig Veda, says it is a... Uh, the Rig Veda describes barbaric rituals performed by barbaric priests, which is very flattering. So, I mean, it was a mix, because England, by this time, the 19th century, England is more or less a free society. There's religious diversity, there's religious freedom, there are very good educational institutions, there's a very strong liberal class, because at the same time, as you have this religious revival, there is a, uh, a liberal movement going on in England. And this liberal movement, very similar to liberal movements nowadays, are extremely sympathetic to indigenous peoples and want, in, 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 in fact, to defend native peoples from what they see as an exploitative and demeaning attitude uh, from conservatives. And so India and Hinduism and Indians have their defenders in England in Parliament, and so on. So you have these two trends. You have these two things going on. So the res And both of these trends will transform India and ultimately lead to uh, Indian independence. So on the one hand, uh, it's, it's like if you put some really strong, weird thing in your body, your body starts to react and produce antibodies and so on. So uh, the Hindu, Hindu India starts producing all kinds of antibodies in response to this Christian invasion, which goes on on the evangelical level, preaching 
and then a sort of a very strong wing of Indology, of, of Orientalism, the, the academic study of India, a very strong wing of it is also allied with the preachers. So we talked about that in the previous class. We started to get organizations like the Brahmo Samaj, the Arya Samaj, all these different organizations, the uh, Prarthana Samaj, that want to reaffirm Hinduism, the dignity and, and the importance and, and even the superiority of Hinduism over and against this missionary challenge. So, now, so that's one thing that's going on. Another thing that's going on is that the liberal wing, their, uh, this liberal movement, education for all, uh, the idea is that, okay, the European justification for colonialism turned out to be a double-edged sword. Because, I mean, it's in a sense their credit that they felt they had to justify it. Uh, it's not to their credit necessarily they did it, but at least they felt, as Christians, they had to come up with an ethical justification, like, why are we doing this? And uh, to the extent to which they were at least nominally Christian, why are we doing this? Well, you know, to uh, rape the land and pillage the women. I mean, we're there to... We're there to, you know, make money and steal everything and put down the native people. That didn't sound like totally Christian. So they came up with something a little more elegant. And why are we there? Well, we're there to civilize the people. We're there to civilize them. We obviously have a superior culture. Europe at that time, Western civilization is ascendant in the world. It's rising militarily, politically. Uh, it's the Europeans that come up with the printing press and all this, you know, super technology and railroads and telegraphs. So Europe is on a total roll at this point. And, you know, they've got, they've got Beethoven. They've got all these great writers. So they've got these great universities, Oxford and, and the Sorbonne and Cambridge. And so Europe is really convinced that this is the greatest culture in the world. And ever since the Renaissance, which is a rebirth of classical civilization, so Europe has now incorporated culturally the best of ancient civilization as well, and they're convinced that this is a master civilization. And since white people came up with it, white people are the natural masters of the world, and uh, it's a noble undertaking. It's a noble undertaking because we are civilizing the world. We are educating the world. We are... Uh, freeing them of mythology and irrational superstition. We are building universities in these countries. They actually built universities in Calcutta, uh, the English, Calcutta, Madras, what is now Chennai, and, uh, and Mumbai, Bombay. So they really believed that they were enlightening, religiously and even materially enlightening these people. Now, so the liberal wing was not really against empire per se, but they felt that the goal, that the purpose of being in India is to ultimately educate these people and to bring them to the state where they can ha have self-rule, they can govern themselves. Now the conservatives said, wait a second, Indians, with all due respect, are incapable of self-government. They're not rational the way that we are. They just don't have that Western, je ne sais quoi. You know, they, they just don't have that... Um, that Western thing, you know, rational, intelligent, 
and everything. It's just it's that Oriental thing, which is you know they feel comfortable with despots and tyrants and so on. So they felt that um, the Indians and the Indians, of course, liberals are arguing yes, they can self-govern. Meanwhile, while these debates were going on in England, uh, the Indians themselves, who, as I've said at the beginning of the course, there have always been a large number of very intelligent people in India. They were becoming educated. And they were learning about the Magna Carta and, you know, and the American Bill of Rights and, and you know, parliamentary government and democracy. And they were thinking, yeah, this sounds good. So if you want to educate us, if you're trying to civilize us, fine. So then we should have the same rights that you do. We have the same education you do now. We have the same culture you do. We want the same rights you do. And so, I mean, you can see where this is going. You can see where this is going. So, uh, any questions on that? So anyway, then in the middle, I think around, you know, in around 1857, the middle of the 19th century, there's a disaster in India, which is, uh, well, you know, the, you know, the, the English put this grease on the uh, gunpowder pouch, and you got to bite it off when you're in combat. And the rumor went around that the grease was pork fat, which totally blew out the Muslims, and then another rumor went around, no, actually it's cow fat, and, you know, that's it for the Hindus. And so you have this uprising in 1857, the Sepoy Mutiny, this great uprising. The British put it down uh, very violently. But it kind of changes the mood. Up until then, it was like, okay, the English are here. Because different people had come into India, historically, even the Greco-Bactrians, the Shaka, the Scythians, the Kushanas. I mean, so many people had come into India and sort of been assimilated. Now the English were here. But with that, it, it kind of created some tension. The English sort of mended things, and life went on. Uh, but with the increasing education of a certain class of Indians, and you've got more and more Indians who spoke the language, talked the talk, and totally were tuned into educated Western civilization. And it became more and more obvious that it was inappropriate for these people not to have the same rights as everybody else, because culturally they were equal to, if not superior to in many cases, their so-called masters. And since the justification was to civilize them, they were civilized. So you have this increasing tension. Now the English, from the very beginning, had, uh, because there are, you know, England's a little island and there are not that many English people and there's a lot of Indians, uh, both Hindus and Muslims, and so England kind of took over in India by divide and conquer. India, uh, that ends the music portion of our program. Now back to our matinee. So, that's okay. I'll get over it eventually. So, if you remember, uh, in the second half of the 17th century, the 1600s, there was this real bad guy, this Mughal emperor, Aurangzeb, that burned out everybody. He's just a, he like as close as you can come to a total jerk, at least in the history of uh, Mughal rule. And so the result was that India was fragmented. The, this empire started to dissolve because he, he, just, he was so nasty that it, it provoked uprisings all over the place 
the Marathas and Maharashtra began their thing. All over India, people were, the Sikhs began their uprising. And so England, by that time, England was already there as traders, and they noticed that this thing is falling apart. And so naturally, as, as, as the old Mughal Empire was sort of starting to fracture and dissolve, it was very easy for the English, or somehow they were very good at it. This is something the English were very good at. You know, making alliances, like, okay, it's, you know, this is, you guys are against those guys, so we're with you. They would kind of pick their spots, and, and they would gradually, by you know, forming alliances, siding with this group and siding with that group, they eventually were able to gain a significant amount of power. And so the English had this tradition of ruling India by this very uh, clever way of dividing and conquering. So now, as India starts to become educated, and as there's more and more, there's more and more of an outcry for rights, and, you know, you've taught us English, you've built universities for us, now we know what real, you know, what our rights are, we want our rights. So as this starts to pick up steam, and of course the East India Company, the word East in East India Company is because, surprisingly, they started in East India. So... It was in Calcutta. Calcutta was actually the capital. And uh, the Bengalis have a long tradition of sort of like intellectual sophistication, artistic sophistication. So you start to get all these movements, the Brahmo Samaj, even the O in Brahmo is a Bengali accent, by the way. So it's, I mean, the Brahmo Samaj started in Bengal, and, you, and, and Subhas Chandra Bose, who became sort of the nemesis of the English in World War II, he was Bengali. So Bengal started to emerge, it started to come onto the British radar as a problem. But this, this is a problem. Uh, and so, in 1905, they decided to divide Bengal into two, the partition of Bengal. And so East Bengal is what we now call Bangladesh. And West Bengal is what we now call West Bengal, which is an Indian state. Now, this was a real bombshell for Indians. This was massively unpopular. People were outraged. Why? Because if you think Bengal, don't think state, think country. This was a country. Every so-called state in India has its own language. Well, not every state, but many states. Bengal, you know, Bengalis speak Bengali. They have their own language. They have their own alphabet. I mean, even if you go from France to Germany, let's say, or to England, it's the same alphabet, right? This is a different language. But Bengal has their own alphabet, their own script. They have their own language. They have their own culture, their own history. It, is, it was a country, not a state. It was a country. And so imagine how popular it would be if someone came to America and kind of took over and then just divided up in America into pieces and declared these are different countries. Now, so... So this was extremely unpopular. And uh, why did the British do it? Well, the reason they gave was that they were trying to, uh, well, administratively, it was more efficient. You know, a lot of people in Bengal were just trying to manage this thing. It's just an efficient corporate decision. Now, the fact, however, was that in East Bengal, East Bengal, Bangladesh, which means Bengali land, in Bangladesh, uh, there was a Muslim majority. And so as the English started to see that this thing is getting a little weird here, 
because there's a lot of people calling out for you know, more rights and participatory democracy, and the old justification for colonial rule is starting to wear thin. And so as the English started to see where this is going, they found this, they say, well, you know, let's, let's run the old play. Like we, we always scored in the past, we ran this play, let's run that play again. And the play they always scored with in the past was, you know, sort of divide people up, these different competing groups in India. And so therefore they justified this partition of Bengal, not only for administrative efficiency, uh, but also it gave the majority Muslims in East Bengal uh, more say, like, you know, it, it sort of, so they started to play this card that they were protecting the Muslims from the Hindu majority. And uh, this would have awful repercussions. One of the repercussions we just saw, unfortunately, during the vacation in Mumbai, which is actually, can be directly traced back to this historical period in terms of the general Hindu-Muslim problem. I mean, it didn't start in this period. There were problems ever since the first Muslim armies came and started, you know, raping and murdering and stealing. It was a problem. But with this, what happened with this partition of Bengal, with this partition of Bengal, it, um, it kind of brought into the new modern India. By 1905, India is becoming a modern country. They have railroads and telegraph, they have universities. It's really becoming a modern country, so to speak. And it brings into modern Indian political discourse the notion that Hindus and Muslims are really need to have their own places. Or there's, there's a real problem for them to get along. And the British, of course, uh, they thought this is a good idea to sort of promote this because, uh, you know, divide and conquer. So the English could side with the Muslims. You know, we're, we're protecting the Muslims in India from the Hindu majority. Or at times we're protecting the Hindus from... So, anyway, that was 1905. And uh, it changed the, the Indian National Congress, the Congress Party, which... To the, by, which still in power in India, isn't it? I mean, isn't Manmohan Singh from the Congress? It's the coalition. Co yeah, but still, he's Congress. I mean, Indira Gandhi was Congress. Nehru was Congress Party. The Congress Party, which was begun by two Englishmen, two English liberals. We talked about the liberal movement. There were two English liberals that thought that we, you know, the Indians are intelligent and they should, you know, they should organize and, and defend their interests under, in the empire. So the Congress Party was started by two English liberals. Meanwhile, the Muslims, they started their own thing called the uh, Indian Muslim League, the IML. The Congress Party had Muslims, actually. But the Muslims, uh, perhaps uh, to some extent, perhaps, under the influence of some English and also their own Moxie, uh, they actually did not want to have a united party. Gandhi, for example, was a nationalist. He wasn't a pushing Hinduism. He was a nationalist, and the Congress Party made serious attempts to accommodate the Muslims. But, but the Muslims within India ultimately decided that they could not trust the Hindus and form their own group. In fact, this IML, the Indian Muslim League, uh, sort of, I don't want to say persecuted, but uh, almost rejected and really came down heavy on Muslims that would even participate in Congress because they said it was, you know, Muslims have no business in a Congress party. So the Muslims, again, uh, sort of pushed this idea that there could not be simply a national party that ultimately, even if you call it a national party, it's really a Hindu party, and even if the Hindus are accommodating Muslims, don't trust them, we need a Muslim party. 
Gandhi, by the way, was ultimately assassinated by a Hindu who felt that he was giving away too many concessions to the Muslims. So there was a real attempt to make concessions to the Muslims. Anyway, 1919, if any of you saw the Gandhi movie, there was a real disaster. And that is in Amritsar, way up in North India, in Amritsar, uh, in a place called uh, Jallianwala Bhag. Uh, again, this new consciousness in India where the Indians, in a sense, are taking their English education seriously, starting to organize protest marches, political action, and so on, still accepting to be part of the empire. They, in fact, they think because we are part of the empire, therefore we have our rights. So this is not a, this is not a movement, uh, this is not necessarily a movement uh, to kick the British out of India. It's a movement to become uh, first-class citizens within the British Empire and to have all the rights that a first-class British citizen has. So they had a peaceful, unarmed, protest thing going on, and a uh, gentleman named Brigadier General <coughs> Reginald Dyer came in with uh, jeeps, you know, trucks with machine guns and all kinds of other serious weapons, and began shooting to kill. In other words, not warning shots, not even like wound them in the leg or something, just shooting to kill. And this is called the Jallianwalapad Massacre of the... Uh, English government declared that there were 379 dead and 200 wounded. However, a civil, there was non-government surgeon named Dr. Smith, who was there, said actually there were 1,000 dead and 1,800 injured. Now, this is in 1919, which is just toward the end of World War I, by the way. And uh, India, Indians, for the most part, really supported England in World War I and expected something a little better in return than, well, say, being massacred. So, after this Jallianwalapad massacre, this was a real watershed event. This really, uh, it was like, as they say, a brand new ball game. After this, uh, that's when Gandhi and the Congress Party, it became much more militant, and there were some groups in India that really wanted to go for it like, we can't really deal with this empire, we need to get them out of here. And uh, it, the movement really became uh, suave, except you know the Spanish, the Spanish word su, mi casa es su casa. Anyway, su means one's own, sua in Sanskrit, sua, and then raja from the word for king. Uh, and so, swaraja basically means self-government. Self-government, you know, one's own kingdom, self-government or sovereignty. And so you have this very strong Swaraja movement. After the, that was the real turning point, like, that, that was like the last straw. So after that, there's really, although there's still a lot of people in India that, even Indians that say, well, it's just, I mean, inevitably. It's a very large country, they're, you know, it's a free country. You get, you get people of all political stripes. Some people say, no, let's cooperate with the English, we can work this out. Some people say, no, we've got to get them out of here. So there's all, you know, there's diversity. But still, there's a very strong Swaraj movement now. Uh, sovereignty, self-rule. So, uh, any question on that? So far? This is sort of a, a historical framework. Now, Gandhi, yes? Um, regarding the Muslims and the Indians, 
Yes. Did the British like encourage that partition? Was it there before the British came in, or was there a time when they were like in India. Um, it varied. There were times, I mean, obviously there were many times in which people just lived together for centuries, but periodically there would be problems. Periodically, for example, the Rungzig. I mean, things certainly not peaceful under Rungzig. You talk about South India, the destruction of Vijayanagar, we, I read that, how... Muslim kingdoms basically massacred everyone, and, and, and so it would go back and forth, it would wax and wane. There was, for example, there was, there was a very odious, that means hated, tax on non-Muslims. And then people like Akbar would repeal the tax, and then other rulers would put it back on. And so, and also, I mean, if you look at the South before the Civil War, I mean, you could say it was peaceful. But sometimes things are peaceful just because one group of people has uh, so uh, much put down another group of people that, you know, it's peaceful because everybody knows their place. Everyone knows that if you step out of your place, something very bad is going to happen to you. And so to say that things are peaceful, under what conditions? So the, the Muslim rule of India was very diverse. There were all kinds of people. There were, there were really good rulers. There were really bad rulers. There were people in the middle. There were religious fanatics, there were eclectics, there were, you know, it's, it's, it's a very diverse thing. It's a very long history and many different Muslim dynasties with different attitudes and different regions dealing with different socio-political religious situations. So, you know, there, there were parts of India where there was, you know, almost a Muslim majority. There were, there were parts of India where there were very few Muslims, but perhaps a Muslim ruler. So it was an extremely diverse landscape. Uh, but in general... I would say, in general, uh, yeah, well, that's all I'll say. It, it was, it was, there were problems from time to time. It wasn't just Camelot or, you know, the Garden of Eden. I mean, there, there were problems. Even though many times and places, everyone sort of lived together. And you had situations where the Hindus would, you know, a, a Muslim ruler had a, a, a Hindu general or some rich Hindu guy who was bankrolling his administration. And so it's just like nowadays. In America, you know, if you're running for office and, and people from different groups are backing you, you take care of your constituency. So it wasn't just, in other words, everything wasn't based on religion. Oftentimes, oftentimes, if not most of the time, Hindus and Muslims would make decisions based on economics, what's good for my business. Or, I mean, there were cases where Hindu kings would be fighting against each other and have Muslim allies, or Muslim kings fight each other, and they'd have Hindu allies. So, so things didn't just all divide along religious fault lines, but, uh, but there were problems, I mean, periodically, definitely. So, uh, to make a long story short, because I want to talk about something else, too, um, World War II kind of just sort of knocked the wind out of the English. After World War II, they just, you know, yeah, knocked the wind out of them. And ultimately, some scholars have said that when you look at the whole picture, colonialism wasn't even good business. Despite the fact that the colonial masters sort of like, you know, stole everything they get their hands on, but ultimately... When you have the East India Company just sort of raping Bengal and stealing everything, that's one thing. 
you know, and then you have these private people getting rich. In fact, there was so much corruption in the East India Company that the East India Company itself eventually went bankrupt for a while. Just because, because all, all the officers of the corporation were stealing everything for themselves. But then, when the British, when the English actually move in and begin to rule India, if they're not simply doing business, then, I mean, building railroads and, and, and setting up universities and just managing and, and paying for their officers, even though they would use, you know, indigenous labor at very good rates and so on, but ultimately, ultimately, when you do all the math and you crunch all the numbers, it's not even clear it was a good business. And so after World War II, England didn't, couldn't even afford to rule India. It was just, it's just like, you look at the Soviet Union. It was something analogous to the collapse of the Soviet Union where they just, they just ran out of gas for various reasons. So then uh, the, the Gandhi and Nehru and General the Congress Party, the Hindu side, was very strongly nationalistic. They wanted a united India. And they were willing to make so many concessions to the Muslims that eventually it cost Gandhi his life. The Muslims, on the other hand, especially this Muhammad Ali, not the boxer, Muhammad Ali Jinnah, uh, was the head of the Muslim League and sort of the founder of Pakistan. And he was adamantly, adamantly uh, demanding a separate state for Pakistan. Now... If you study the history, it, it, you, it's hard to imagine for us the trauma or what it's like to actually have your country divided into pieces, especially if you really believe it's a country. So it was a very heavy thing. It was the largest displacement of people in known history. I mean, 10 million people. Because when they divided it, uh, basically Hindus, a lot of Hindus fled from Pakistan, from what was, you know, what is now Pakistan, that part of Punjab. They fled from that area into Hindu India, and Muslims went to Pakistan. Pakistan, of course, was east and west. I mean, that's probably, well, it is before your time, obviously, for most of you. West Pakistan was what is now Pakistan. East Pakistan was what is now Bangladesh. And so the justification, like, we need a, we need a Muslim homeland because we're Muslims, uh, ironically, uh, what led to the separation of Bangladesh as, 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 as another country is that the... The Punjabi Muslims, the ones in, in current Pakistan, were, were so heavily brutalizing and exploiting the Bengali Muslims that it led to a war. It led to a very violent, nasty war, and Bangladesh became a separate country because that was Muslim-on-Muslim -Muslim violence, which we've seen throughout, well, the history of Islam. So, anyway... So it, they divided the country, and it was a very nasty thing. There were all kinds of uh, killings on both sides. I mean, huge numbers of people were killed in, in, in Muslim-Hindu riots and, and battles. It was a very ugly, bloody partition, and left very, very bad blood on both sides. And then you have a case like Kashmir. Apparently this terrorist uh, episode in Mumbai now was somehow connected with Kashmiri groups because... During this partition, I mean, you have to decide, like, where do you draw the boundary? And this was an extremely contentious issue. Where do you draw the boundary? And then you had a certain political category under British rule, which was independent kings. There were certain old Maharajas in India who uh, 
cooperated with the English and agreed to be within the British Empire, but the English, in order, you know, it was just, it, it was made sense for the English, in certain cases, not to go to the map, you know, not to get into a war with these people, because it was just too much. So in certain cases, they would just give these kings certain special rights, certain type of autonomy, and the kings in return would be within the empire. And so what about those kingdoms? And so they, those kingdoms, in some cases, were given a right to choose whether they wanted to be part of Pakistan or, or, um, or India. And so in the case of Kashmir, even though there was a majority Muslim population in Kashmir, the king of Kashmir was a Hindu. And so he chose India. And they're still fighting about it. Basically, they're still fighting about it. So, uh, typically the Muslims would, would play that card, you know, say that you have, a king has no right to uh, dictate to a, minor, to a majority when the whole Muslim rule in India from the very beginning was based on that principle. I mean, that's all they ever did was dictate to a majority Hindu population. That's the whole history of Islamic rule in India. And so it's, to say the least, ironic that in the case of Kashmir, suddenly you can't do that. Apparently you can't do it as long as you're on the right side. But anyway, so that's Kashmir, and it's still going on. They're still fighting. So what you, I mean, I'm sure you saw in the news, all these horrific events are still going on. And so, so the partition between, I was just talking to Jason Nealis, actually. We, we had all these great conversations, and, and he agreed. Actually, he made the point that, you know, India might be better off today politically, and just, it might be. The world might be a better place if they hadn't divided it, because this division is, is, has not healed. I mean, it's like an operation where the patient has never healed. And so, um, I mean, not they're going to merge the two countries together, so don't wait for that to happen. But, uh, so any questions on this? Sort of brief uh, history. If not, uh, I wanted to, well have a few minutes left, but I wanted to explain how India was transformed, or Hinduism specifically. This is the religion department after all. How Hinduism was transformed by modernity. Uh, the word Hindu, which I, I've explained before, it's very well known. There's a Sanskrit word, Sindhu, which means a large body of water. There's a river going through what is now Pakistan, the Sindhu River. People on this side of the river, the Persians, pronounce it S, at the beginning of the word is an H. So that became Hindu. And they called the land east of the Sindhu River Hindustan. So Hindu originally referred just to everyone on the east side of that river. So um, what's interesting is that to be a Hindu, as, as, if anything, we've learned from this class that it's an extremely diverse thing. I mean, there's if you think of all the different Vedanta traditions, all the... Uh, the Vaishnavas, the Shaivas, the Shaktas, the Tantrikas, it's, um, there are all kinds of different religions, in a sense, which are all grouped together as Hinduism. And until, let's say, a few hundred years ago, people in India didn't consider themselves Hindus. If you study the history, I'll, I'll have to do this brief, there's not much time. If you study the history of the word Hindu, the history of the use of the word Hindu, there are three historical phases. The early stage, which is, or the first stage, which is basically from the very beginning of Indian civilization up till very recently, 
The word wasn't used. People just didn't use that word. So that if you study Vedic literature, it's not even a Sanskrit word. It's not a Sanskrit word, and it's not in any Sanskrit literature. It's just a word that's not used. Now, with the Muslim invasion, when the Muslims came into India, they called all non-Muslims Hindus. They called all non-Muslims Hindus. And um, so if you look at medieval Indian literature, what you find is that what we now call Hindus, people accept the Vedas, the word is only used, in, they only use the word in conversations with Muslims. In other words, if someone who's a Shaiva or a Vaishnava or a Shakta or a Vedantin or whatever, if someone on what we now call the Hindu side is speaking to a Muslim, usually the Muslim will refer to that person as a Hindu, and sometimes the so-called Hindu will use the word Hindu only in speaking to Muslims. And what we find is that when so-called Hindus are talking to each other, they never use the word. In other words, they never understand themselves as Hindus. It's just a word they use to speak to Muslims, because that's what Muslims call them. So that's the second stage when the word is used only in conversations with Muslims who have political power, who have the power of life and death over these people, and therefore, you know, they kind of go along with that, with that term. When, only when they're speaking to Muslims, it's usually the Muslims who use the word. Third stage is, uh, something very interesting happens. I, I just mentioned here in my notes that um, the chairman of the department here, Vasudhan Narayanan, uh, wrote a book on Sri Vaishnavism. It's, a, it's the most important Vaishnav group in Southeast India, their followers of Ramanuja, whom we studied. And what I found interesting is in her entire book, which is sort of a standard book on this very important Hindu tradition, in her entire book, the word Hindu or Hinduism doesn't even appear in her index. So you can write a whole history of a major Hindu group without using the word Hindu. And if you look at the Vedanta debates, you know, in this corner from you know, Kerala, Shankara. So you have Shankara, and then you've got Ramanuja, and Madhva, and the Mimamsa people, you know, our old friends Mimamsas, and the Buddhist philosophers. If you look at all these debates, these very sophisticated debates that went on for centuries and centuries, no one uses the word Hindu. It's just, you won't find the word. If you look at the Vaishnav literature, like such as uh, sophisticated literature, in which the, the Vaishnavas are trying to make the case that uh, they are Vedic. Because these bhakti movements that arose, you know, Vedic for some people meant you're just a, a rule-obsessed uh, ritual Brahmin that does sacrifices for material gain, and the bhakti traditions are not really quote-unquote Vedic. So there was a whole struggle in which uh, the bhakti movements, the Vaishnava movements, other movements established themselves as Vedic, and they were successful in doing that. But if you look at all of that literature, no one ever uses the word Hindu. No one's arguing, I'm a Hindu. They're arguing, I'm Vedic. Or this is the real meaning of the Upanishads. But no one's trying to argue that this is what, what Hinduism really is. That's not even a word they're using. Because, of course, that stuff is pre-Muslim invasion. Uh, there is a um, history of Sanskrit literature written by the great Oxford Sanskritist A. A. MacDonnell. We use his grammar book in the Sanskrit class. And uh, he only uses the word Hindu once in his entire history of Sanskrit literature. It was just, just to mention where the word Hindu comes from, that it's a corruption of the Sanskrit word. So 
Uh, now, here's a quote from uh, a scholar who passed away a few years ago named Halfoss, German scholar taught at Penn, University of Pennsylvania. He's a very, really good scholar. Anyway, uh, in one of his books, Indian Europe, he writes, uh, one of the most striking, one of the most striking and transparent changes in the, quote, modern period since about 1800, remember we started since 1800 when these changes are going on, one of the most striking and transparent changes is the new use, the new use of Hindu, the word Hindu, as an internal self-identification. In other words, it's not just if you're talking to a Muslim who, who just insists on calling you a Hindu, sort of go along with it so he doesn't kill you. But now Hindus talking to, the, to each other, people talking to each other, there's no danger, they just start to call themselves Hindus. That is something new, and it, it's only about 200 years old. So we're talking about a religion, Hinduism, which goes back thousands and thousands of years, and yet for the, these people to call themselves Hindus is about 200 years old, as opposed to calling themselves Vaishnavas, or Shaktas, or Tantrikas, or Vedantas, or whatever. So now, uh, some people were against this. For example, the Arya Samaj, as you remember, I'm sure. The Arya Samaj, uh, mid to late 19th century, Dayananda Saraswati was the Vedic purist. We only want the Vedas, no Puranas, no Itihasas. Get rid of the mythology, get rid of the temple worship. Let's go back to the original pristine Vedas. He hates the word Hindu. Uh, for example, the, uh, the Arya Samaj, this is from Halfas, tried to replace the word Hindu with the ancient term Arya. R.N. Surya Narayana, in this group, calls Hindu a detestable term of which we should be ashamed. So some people didn't like it. Whoops. Oh my God. Okay, go into my sprint here. Other people did like it. Other people did like it. Um, for example, M.S. Golvalukar and B.D. Savarkar, who were very important leaders in the Indian movement for independence, argued vehemently that the word Hindu was not at all adopted from the Muslims and was not originally used by non-Hindus. Instead, they claim it as a genuinely Indian term reflecting the unity, the sublimity, and the speciality of the Indian people, which is remarkably ahistorical. Now, then there was this great figure, Vivekananda. So this debate is going on over the word Hindu. It wasn't just like, yeah, everybody's happy with it. There was a debate about the word. Then uh, Vivekananda, who's uh, one of the leading figures of modern Hindu thought and self-awareness, who restored sort of Hindu's dignity and so on. Vivekananda uh, said, he declared, we're all Hindus, and to be Hindu is to be an Advaita Vedanta. In other words, not only are we now all Hindus, but we're going to privilege the philosophy of Shankara. It's all one, because Vivekananda thought that if we, if we say it's all one, that Hindus won't fight with each other, because it doesn't matter what you worship, because whatever you worship, according to Shankara, is a delusion anyway, so like, why sweat the small stuff like who you think God is? So, <laughs> so that's, I think, the really bad thing that happened. In this new self-conception that we're all Hindus, Vivekananda, here's a quote from Vivekananda uh, from a lecture in London. That is what we want. And that only, uh, that can only be created, established, and strengthened by understanding and realizing the ideal of the Advaita, the impersonal view. 
that the ideal of oneness of all defeats the Advaita aspect of the Vedanta. It is necessary to rouse up the hearts of men, show them the glory of their souls. It is therefore that I preach this Vedanta. So you've got, what you've got is, under this sort of like rubric of we're all Hindus, sort of like this attempt to take over the whole history and take over the whole Indian Vedic thing, an attempt by Advaita Vedanta. Now, fortunately, Vivekananda never studied the Vedas and didn't know them very well, and therefore couldn't actually get too technical about it. But, but the idea, it's sort of like this popularizing, it's all one thing. And, and so this ancient debate between the personal and the impersonal, the monism and the Veda Veda, suddenly Vivekananda and Dr. Radha Krishna saying, we're all Hindus and we're all Advaita, Vedantas. And it's, anyway, it's a very strange thing that happens. And now that, you know, this is a real cliffhanger, like where is Hinduism going? So we'll stop here. See you Wednesday.